0: This is Anirban Saha and I welcome you on behalf of the team to one new episode of season two, where we interview a selected few professionals in the domain of data science and converse about what it takes to get a job in the real world. Today in conversation, we have Dr. Devmalya Biswas. Dr. Devmalya Biswas is the CTO of Darwin Digital till January 2021 he was the AI architect of Philip Morris International. While remaining in the industry, he has written papers and published in really great publications. He grew up and he did his bachelor's in India, his master's in Canada and PhD in France. He works in Switzerland. In this discussion, we explore a lot of things from challenges of a researcher in a business setup to understanding how he understands whether a candidate is motivated and what the future holds for natural language processing, computer vision and predictive analysis. If you like our work, hit the follow button on our LinkedIn page. The link is in the podcast description. Also do share your feedback with us and listen to our other episodes. Let's get started. Dev Maloda, hello and welcome to this podcast.
1: Many thanks, Anirvan, for the invitation and looking forward to really a great, interesting conversation. Thanks.
0: Honestly, I do not exactly know where to start this conversation because there were so many starting points that I had to choose one. And let's start with this. In 2020, you published six papers as per Google Scholar, four of which you were a single author and the rest as a first author, and this despite being the AI architect of a multinational company. So the first question would be, what keeps you motivated?
1: Uh, I think that's a good question and if I try to kind of reflect, you know, so I think it's difficult because, uh, you know, there's the way the world we live in or we work in. There's a clear distinction between, let's say, academic work where people are publishing all the time and the enterprise world where, you know, kind of where I have been more or less for the last uh, many years where it's deemed not so essential. Academic work is more considered as kind of, um, you know, something far into the future, not practical that cannot be implemented. So, I think what we need is, and what I also try to encourage, really, wherever I get the chance and kind of, you know, the opportunity to influence the stakeholders, is that we need to bridge bridge the gap. So the papers, the presentations were so basically kind of, you know, trying to push myself and the team to really kind of share what we are doing. Uh, helps in kind of driving it forward, and because it was coming from the enterprise world. It was really kind of things that we worked on, very applied, that can be applied in, you know, the next two, three years, even currently, so things that we were doing. So the main motivation was really, I would say, really to bridge this gap that I see, you know, between the academic world where uh, people are maybe, you know, uh, thinking of things which are a few years ahead and the enterprise world where, uh, you know, we want things which can be applied today, uh, maybe yesterday. And uh, I, I think that's kind of one of the challenges that needs to be addressed.
0: And I couldn't help but uh, notice that you were always the first author un- unless you were the only author. So how is researching in the corporate setup like?
1: It, it's very difficult. I mean, here again, I'm mean, <clears throat> i assuming that, you know, most of you are students. So you haven't been, let's say, exposed to the types of enterprise that exist there. So. I mean, you know, so let's say we are all in computer science, IT and things like that. Here, I would really differentiate between, um, let's say, the Googles and the Microsofts and the Amazons who are, you know, let's say, the benchmarks, I would say, in terms of driving research in IT, applied research in IT. The second is, let's say, slightly smaller uh, companies who are still building IT products so their core focus is IT, they are an IT company but not at the level where they can have a dedicated research lab and things like that. And the third category and which actually makes the most of the enterprise world is the non-IT companies. These are companies where you will still find IT but they are not, you know, their job is not to do R&D, their job is more to take what is available, evaluate what is available and apply them. And in such companies, so the third kind, you know, it is very difficult to do um, R&D because that's not your job expectation, that's not what you're expected to do. And, um, you know, sometimes it is so you really have to fight that, you know, as we as companies are getting more digital, even the non-IT focused ones we shouldn't think of, uh, you know, only applying. I mean, what open source has done, what, especially in, let's say, AI, computer science, and, you know, um, let's say even uh, blockchain and things like that, more and more things are open source, which have, uh, you know, really bridged the gap where, you know, you don't need to be a Microsoft earlier with proprietary technologies to do something. Even as a non-IT company, you can do a lot of things. You can be state-of-the-art, but There needs to be a push from your senior management, you need to have that to push it. So I think that's really, it depends, you know, whether you're working for, let's say, a very tech-focused, R&D-focused company, or you're working for uh, more, uh, I would say, the non-IT companies who still want to, you know, digitally transform themselves and things like that.
0: But Deepmalo, though, you talk about senior management, but you are yourself a CTO, are you not in a position to make changes in the ecosystem in your small ways?
1: Uh, yes, I mean, but so I have been in a variety of roles, you know, so so CTO is, again, I'm kind of, uh, you know, it's a small company. So here, of course, I'm trying to, let's say, we are more IT focused. We are more like an IT consulting company. So here, these things work. So I would say this is more in the second category. But again, uh, I mean, like, without, You know, taking any names, let's say Philip Morris, and uh, you know, even where I was like Swisscom before, they are not pure IT companies. They are so telecom. I would say is slightly close to IT companies, but Philip Morris or FMCG companies or logistics companies, even the pharma companies, you know, even the banks, they they their core focus is not to do IT R and D. They are more interested in kind of applying, and their uh, Again, okay, it's very difficult to say without getting controversial. But you know, these these companies are not used to doing IT. Uh, let's say R and D. IT for a long time for banks, pharma companies was to keep the infrastructure running, to keep the Wi-Fi running, to keep the printers running. So they are not used to. Uh, let's say the you know the old guard, the senior management is not used to the type of uh, IT that is coming up. Who are more self-sufficient, who want to do things, who want to take things forward. So there's a a gap. Some companies are doing a better job of adapting to it, whereas some companies are still kind of, um, you know, let's say, focused in the old ways of working. And there it is difficult to drive the senior management. So senior management, I really mean the C-level.
0: Talking about what keeps you motivated, you also are very present in events like Berlin buzzwords, where people come to listen to you and you share your knowledge you are invited as speaker in many forums how do you balance life on one hand you're running a company you're doing your own research you are also taking part in events actively you have your personal life as well so how do you balance it
1: yeah so i think there are two or three things here one perhaps i'm not the right role model you know because some of it means that if you are doing so much multitasking it means that uh, maybe you are too focused on your work so again it depends on what your priorities in life are secondly there's a bit of um, you know a hidden motivation behind doing some of these things because clearly well it was different when i was working for let's say a larger company but uh, now that I'm kind of, uh, you know, let's say we are a kind of IT consulting company here. The, I mean, speaking at conferences, things like that are also seen as some kind of sponsorship. You know, that's how you get business. That's how you present yourself as. Uh, so it's kind of basically building a brand around you, you know. So that's how you show that you are really top of the game. This is what you know. So it's kind of showcasing yourself as well. So things like Berlin Buzzwords and things where you are, you, which are a bit more applied conferences. Here, you, you know, these are really, you know, sometimes there's a business motive behind it. I think that's what I'm trying to say. So sometimes it's, they are encouraged, but it depends. I mean, and you know, this is where I also see this, you know, if you go to, let's say this type of applied conferences, sometimes it's all driven by sponsors, everyone giving a keynote, spe- uh, who is a keynote speaker. Well, most people who are a keynote speaker are usually their company sponsoring the event. So. You need to choose, you know, many of these events have really become business events. So these conferences, you know, I like Berlin buzzwords because it was focused on open source. They really didn't take any sponsors. All the speakers, you know, there was no, no link between who was sponsoring versus who was speaking. So as i'm an audience you really need to choose because uh, some of them you know they're like big conferences but they are really driven by uh, by sponsors and on the other hand if you go to conferences like which are really research driven like cvpr NeurIPS, and things like that there's no companies there's either the google's amazons or the universities there's no companies like even the small it companies and things like that and that kind of goes back to what i was mentioning you know the the big divide that exists between the R&D focused organizations and the and the IT companies. So, so again, to kind of answer your question, there's a bit of you know self uh, motivation in terms of building a brand, promoting for a company, and of course, in in the end, you know sharing knowledge is always good. Some people um, you know take it as a priority. Some people do not. But the, usually the feedback that I have received from conferences that people always, you know, appreciated at least, uh, you know, who kind of uh, heard. But again, it goes back to whether you are just advertising a product or you are really kind of uh, sharing something that would be useful for someone. And yeah. For, yeah. Sorry, and a product I, can I, also be useful, cool. but you know what I mean. You know, it's the difference yes. between an advertisement and really sharing with the aim of sharing.
0: Yeah. Um, I also noticed that your publications covered quite a range of topics. And only very recently you were researching on enterprise search because you were in Philip Morris. Then you moved on to become the CTO and you changed tracks. And when we discussed this in our personal conversation, you mentioned that your idea was not to become an NLP expert. Um, that's very contrary to what we discuss in universities where we are asked to have an area of interest We take courses, we do projects, we do thesis, we excel in one area of interest. And you don't seem to follow that. And you you have your own rules, for that matter. We would love it if you explain it from your perspective, how you see it, and perhaps the T model which you mentioned.
1: Sure, I mean I think it also depends, you know, at what stage of your career you are in. So for me, I have a bit of luxury that, you know i mean i started in i mean in databases so i was working for oracle as a database consultant then i moved to distributed computing you know the concurrency the semaphores and things like that to privacy focused research at kind of at sap nokia where we were you know kind of pushing uh, let's say privacy enhancing technologies the homomorphic encryption and things like that that you hear today kind of coming back and to really the more recent future uh, let's say past where I have been working on more NLP and computer vision. Sorry, for your question.
0: I will interrupt you a bit. This is the first time I'm I'm interrupting a guest. You mentioned at which stage of your career you are in, but if you see your your pathway, your career, you have always done that. Like you mentioned, you started with databases, then you went to distributed systems, privacy focus, then NLP, and now computer vision.
1: No, that's a valid qu- uh, question. So let me come to that. So, okay, so about my history. So, yes, I mean, for me, it has been kind of, you know, uh, that kind of having a broad overview that allows me to kind of, so, you know, I, I like kind of exploring new technologies. But coming back to the comment that I that I made and why it is relevant. So I think if you are kind of starting your career in data science, you know, you uh, in this so again I mean data science it depends what you mean because now we are kind of clubbing data science and machine learning together so computer vision NLP and uh, predictive analytics and things like that I would say okay the whole kind of uh, machine learning what we mean today I mean if you are starting your career today or kind of you know I think it's good to uh, specialize yes you need to have an overview there are certain overlapping aspects and uh, i will again come to it with an example so again because i think most of you are kind of nlp based so let's say transformers is no, everyone now okay but let's say you're kind of all related to um let's just say a uh, field so i mean taking a concrete example you you see like transformers started as the you know the great big revolution in nlp but now you see transformers being applied to computer vision so you have vision transformers and things like that And this you cannot do unless you have, uh, you know, exposure to, let's say, NLP and computer vision. So this is where also the T-model comes into practice. So again, if you're starting your career, I would say specialization is good because there are too many generalists who, you know, can give advice, but they cannot do things. So it's good to specialize. But when I meant that at my level, you know, where kind of, I was in a position where I was leading a team and we were, uh, you know, so let's say at Philip Morris, where we were kind of center of excellence, where we were working with the different business units. And we had use cases kind of covering the whole spectrum from, you know, where we needed to apply NLP to where we needed to apply computer vision. So in those cases, I mean, I wasn't, let's say, implementing all of them. I was more acting as a kind of, um, you know, consultant lead something you know where we need expertise or things like that I would get involved but that required that I have a bit more breadth uh, in terms of you know having knowledge of different uh, use cases because At that time, it was a bit of business development as well, because you're talking to business stakeholders, trying to see what type of technology can be applied and where. So you need to have a broad exposure to technologies. You need to understand, let's say, up to 50%, what most of them can do, but then the real specialization you can only do in one or two things. So that's why I meant like depends on what stage of the career you are in, how you are involved in the AI ecosystem. You know, if you are in kind of engineering team, you need to implement things. I would say it's good to specialize. If you are kind of more as a product owner, you're interacting with different teams, you're working for a large company, which requires, um, you know, let's say different types of use cases. It's good to have a T-shaped knowledge as well, where you are easily able to, uh, not easily, but able to bridge between uh, different fields, I would say.
0: One of the questions which I did not think I'll ask you, but I will right now, because this is one of the questions that I have faced uh, from other students is at what point would a student know that, okay, this is the point I have specialized enough and I can be recruited into a company and vice versa that I have this much knowledge in computer vision. Uh, and this much in nlp i have done a couple of projects here and i and i have done a couple of projects there and then suddenly i realized that i am not very eligible for any company because they ask for a specialization so at what point should any student stand up and say okay now i am ready
1: i think honestly you know you are ready when you have prepared a few data science interview tests you know so I think you have to see the two things very differently. I wouldn't mix, you know. One is the practical practicality of getting a job, and the other thing is what you want to do uh, technically. So how you approach about getting a job is really, you know, it's. I mean the way most companies hire, and I I am not a big believer in it. In that I have, I think I have told you before, is, you know, they have this very long process of you know, so fundamental questions, then data science questions, then you know you go to a whiteboard, kind of do do things like that. You, I mean, there's a. You know there are only certain amount of questions that even the interviewers can ask there are only a certain amount of scenarios that uh, you know that they even interviewers can do so the way to approach this to get a job is really to prepare yourself you know i, I wouldn't name them but you know there are so many let's say data science uh, whatever you want to specialize in interview preparations i'm not saying you even need to pay something it's to, it just you just need a bit of uh, motivation and you focus but then your target is really kind of getting you know getting a job i mean when it comes to really whether i should focus in nlp computer vision or uh, or whichever field interests you i mean that is purely up to you i think there are jobs in everything Uh, yes i mean you know predictive analytics or computer vision may have slightly more jobs than nlp today but that is changing, hopefully, with Transformers and, you know, the more and more you see kind of uh, NLP being used in, let's say, legal and kind of uh, still in more uh, specific industries. But but that is picking up. So there, where you should specialize in and up to what extent, that really depends on, you know, what is driving you, where you find interest. I mean, you can, speci- you can keep on specializing by doing a PhD as well, which kind of is interesting for some people because you are really interested in going into the depth of a problem going beyond the state of the art. Whereas in some cases, your interest is more like you want to you know, really take what exists and scale them. So which is what you would more do at an enterprise level. So that is not an easy answer to give uh, you know that really depends on what excites you sometimes you're more excited by NLP you feel like the talking chatbot is more interesting than you know you you can do computer vision object detection on on some things but but I would really decouple the you know the red, the job readiness from what you specialize in if you specialize in any field there are jobs so I, I wouldn't worry about that
0: you also mentioned that you are not a big believer in what is traditionally the recruitment process. So right now you're you're in a position to take charge. How would you change the recruitment process?
1: Uh, I mean, again, I, I'm not saying that this is right or wrong, you know, but I think it's somehow, I know the reason companies have this uh, five rounds of interviews, seven rounds of interviews is just the supply and demand. It's just that, Google gets you know 200 300 applications for every position they can afford to do it i don't see that that in a way they can cherry pick yes so i mean fundamentally i don't believe that it kind of uh, you know is a good way to filter people or things like that it's just because there are enough people applying and they have the luxury to do it you can do it for me i mean i think Somewhat what is missing is also a bit the attitude. So what I look for when I'm usually hiring myself is, yes, you need good fundamentals. But the way the world is changing today, the way the technologies are changing today, the way, you know, even as a small company or a medium-sized company, you would be working in different things. So what is very important to do or to show is that you have a certain level of motivation and a pedigree to, to learn new things. I mean that is what I'm usually looking for. Yes, you need certain level of fundamentals. I wouldn't maybe hire someone who has a you know history background who has never touched uh, or let's say programmed anything for a uh, for a machine learning job. But yes, I wouldn't differentiate between you know today you don't know transformers as something to hold you back against um, you know giving you a, a NLP uh, let's say focused job if I really see that you know you have the fundamentals and someone can and learn it so. That's my belief, and that's also how I kind of usually do. But um, yes, there are two two, uh, thought processes here, I would say.
0: You talked about transformers and people with programming experiences. What about soft skills? So when you recruit or uh, when you see recruitments happening, how important is a candidate's soft
1: skills? I think it's, again... uh, something to think about and to some extent it also depends on you know again i would go back to your career stage where you are and maybe what type of company you are going for so yes soft skills are important if you you know if you have them it's great Uh, but let's say even if you don't have them i think you would fit very well as long as uh, you are kind of you know doing a as long as your job is more to implement things execute things and you are more or less focused on you know doing what you have been told yes you still need some you know basic team skills you should be able to talk in a scrum meeting you should be able to you know talk to your let's say neighboring uh, person let's say what you are doing and kind of communicate reasonably but you do not need the soft skills that we usually mention in the enterprise world, which is really to, you know, influence your stakeholders, influence your managers, influence, uh, let's say, the future of, uh, you know, the the future architecture of what you will be doing and things like that. So, but as you grow, and if you are maybe in a non-IT company, then you need more soft skills because then it's equally important that you are able to, you know, even I would say, at a reasonable level of experience you are really re- required to interact with others with business people who do not talk it who do not talk um, you know who talk a different jargon so again it depends on the type of company you are working for the type uh, type of uh, let's say work that you are doing you can be a very good researcher you can have a phd you can do a very good researcher without without any social skills without talking without with talking very little to other people you know so if that is the kind of job that excites you and that is what you like to do that is fine you know you can find your niche but at the same time if you want to go to let's say you know a more let's non-it kind of uh, company which is like a reasonably big company because then you will need to align with people you know in big companies usually you need to get everyone on the same board before you are able to push things so those you need soft skills so for those kind of jobs you will need soft skills and maybe if your soft skills are, if you have very good soft skills that's also something that um, you can kind of you know leverage so there it will be kind it will help you to progress so again this goes back to uh, let's say introspecting what you are good at and where you're kind of uh, you know what you want to do as well you mentioned
0: that your future teammate should have the motivation to learn newer things. How do you judge them? Because to get a job, many people will say that they are very motivated.
1: <laughs> yeah, which doesn't mean a thing. I mean, I have seen, uh, you know, we are human beings, you know, we will lie to get a job, you know, so of course, you I mean, you don't take everything at, um, at face value, but uh, so... Usually, if you're looking for, you know, if you're hiring an experienced person where you have a track record, you know, where where the person can easily show that they have uh, changed fields or kind of they have, um, let's say, tried new things, they have explored new things, you can give examples, it's uh, easier. Um, even, Even if you are starting, I mean, I think usually what you would look for is that, you know, this is your coursework that you were giving. Maybe you did a project which was outside the coursework or you know you took an initiative and you you know you learned a new thing so all those are kind of uh, good kind of indicators which tell you that a person is, you know, is more motivated to to keep up to date to learn things by themselves and uh, these are very important in uh, let's say today's very evolving technology uh, landscape i mean it doesn't have to be ai in any it field these days there's kind of uh, you know so much happening you, you need to have this to succeed this is uh, this is not a choice this you need this whether you are working for an it company or a non-it company the soft skills the other things that we mentioned the specialization may be varied to some extent but the continuous learning the ability to learn explore new things this is needed irrespective of where you are working
0: so if i may um, reconstruct the entire thing the projects so from a freshest perspective from a freshest point of view the projects really matter to a recruiter especially if you are recruiting wouldn't would master thesis matter
1: i think that's kind of uh, usually again I, i don't know what is the structure there but Sometimes these days, you know, the students have an option where you can choose either to do a thesis with a professor with a more academic, let's say, uh, background. uh, And you also have the option of doing it at an industry uh, where, you know, you can work on a more applied uh, problem in a, a, let's say, more uh, enterprise setting. So, again. If you want to do a PhD, definitely the academic way is better. If you want to get a job in the industry, definitely something that you did in the industry, even though, um, again, I mean, master's thesis, you have to take it with a grain of salt. I have seen, let's say, some some projects which are, you know, people are really using the master students to really as, you know, their kind of uh, Um, really their own employees and they are really working on the project to really sometimes they have some side problem that nobody uh, has the budget to work on so you take a student to work on it which is which doesn't have so much priority but still because you did it in an industry setting and because you kind of um, you know you have a feel of how the enterprise works, how the industry works and, you know, you have a certain rhythm culture um, that you see in an enterprise that would be preferred when you're trying to get a job in the industry as compared to a purely university-driven academic project. So, again, think about what you want to do next before how you decide.
0: Okay. Um, To know whether a person is motivated to try newer things out, wouldn't hobbies be a good indicator?
1: I mean, again, to be very frank and my personal opinion, you know, I mean, when, when we were starting out, when we were kind of uh, trying to get, let's say when we were, okay, I'm still trying to get a job all the time. (laughs) I think when we were applying, you know, we were always asked to put like hobbies, what are your side kind of, um, um, let's say, um, activities, what you have done. But I think Grow, uh, let's say if I take the situation now, especially in this hyper-competitive, um, you know, environment of uh, let's say AI, cloud, IT, things like that, I have honestly seen colleagues and myself included. Maybe you know we put very less focus on it these days. It's almost guaranteed. I mean, I think the, the assumption is that yes, you will have a hobby. And, you know, again, it's like, you know, it's very difficult to judge how much of the hobby actually helps you. Yes, you can be a photographer, which kind of makes you a bit creative, but then everybody is clicking pictures with iPhones here. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, again, I think it, if, you, if, you, if you really want to get a job in this field, I think it has gone down. That's my honest opinion and kind of the value of, uh, you know, hobbies or let's say how it is considered in today's job market. Uh, But again, I'm talking about, let's say, AI, IT, these kind of things. I don't know, maybe in marketing, maybe in other types of jobs, they they are still very valuable. So I can only say from my own experience what I see. And unfortunately, I do practice sometimes.
0: Okay, last question regarding the motivation part, because I'm still hung up there. What if someone recommends a person would you take that into consideration and in the re- and in the recommendation it's written that he's very motivated to learn newer things would you take that recommendation letter into consideration
1: sure it depends i mean so i think what uh, what happens usually is is you get a more um, let's say you know because companies have to give you a letter of recommendation you get a very generic recommendation which i wouldn't uh, take too seriously but yes if your manager or someone you know even your colleague you know who kind of um, writes a personal recommendation for you i would take that very much into consideration i think that is that has a lot of value if so, if someone in today's world takes a, takes time to you know write a recommendation for you i think it has a lot of value and yes again that person's perspective might be different it might be in a different context and things like that But I would at least, um, again, speaking from my own experience, I think that still holds a lot of value.
0: Okay, let's take a step back. You mentioned that there is a gap and we should bridge the gap. What would you do in your own capacity to bridge this gap between the academic world and the industry?
1: I think the best strategy is, you know, to really let the work speak for itself. I think the more we see, you know, let's say more we see successful examples of where something that is more in the, you know, research field, let's say really where, um, you know, where you're able to take something that has come out in a recent um, AI conference or something, and you're able to apply that to solve something in a very enterprise world, where you know you have a concrete problem and you need to solve it today. I think the more and more we see examples of this, where people see that this really works, uh, everything is you know driven by by let's say a need. So once people see that. There is, you know, the enterprise world sees that there is something in research that can be leveraged today. Similarly, the researchers, the academic researchers see that, you know, it's not, we cannot think of abstract problems and uh, try solving it. We need to think of something that can be used by the industry today. The more we have such applications, you can already see it. I mean, in most, let's say, uh, good AI conferences these days, they they ask for code, they ask for reproducibility. They ask for, you know, that it uh, solves things. Uh, it, It addresses ethical concerns and things like that. So there is a certain, let's say, amount of bridging that is happening. But again, like I said before, it's not sufficient as of today. You hardly see any companies kind of represented at research conferences. Similarly, the company, you know, the managers, the decision makers are not going to these conferences because they don't see the value of it. Similarly, researchers are, uh, you know, let's say the more academic settings, they are very happy to keep working in their uh, academic world and uh, they do not see the need to apply things to, to, to let's say, more real world uh, kind of settings. Most of the things they imagine in their prototypes and things like that are basically imagined. They are, they are not real. But again, I think this is changing to some extent. You have real world data sets. But again, if you look at NLP, you know, you have, uh, you know, the benchmarks that you look at, the, you have now the squad and the other benchmarks, there are eight benchmarks for eight different tasks, you know, what are usually considered as the key NLP tasks, so from you have from translation to summary abstraction to, to chatbots so or the conversations and things like that. These. You know they don't come they are very limited kind of uh, benchmarks and these data sets have been designed kind of few years back so they're really not up to date and it's very difficult to say that these represent the nlp problems that we have today but again maybe the blame is on the enterprise companies you know because they don't get into this conversation of providing this is the data we have this is the problem we have that can you solve this so Yes, there are exceptions, but in most cases, this is not happening. So, unfortunately, the gap still exists, and the only way to close this gap is trying to do more successful technology transfers. Only when we see, let's say, more uh, more of these kind of um, research results being applied today, I think this will this will. Hopefully the gap will kind of shorten, but um, I think what, sorry, sorry to drag the question. I think what is happening is that the enterprise vendors are also starting to kind of maybe bridge this gap, you know, because you have the Amazons, you have the Googles now kind of trying to come up with products, which are really taking these research products and putting them into something that can be applied to, uh, to let's say an enterprise context. So this is where you have the cloud capabilities coming up you have the ready to use apis which maybe are not so customizable but they take the approach of you know this is the minimum that you can use as a starting point this is used as an api so i I see them kind of so cloud again so you know the nlp api is kind of trying to bridge this gap a bit between the really enterprises and the research world but i think till the till the kind of uh, practitioners and the researchers start talking to each other, this will still take some time.
0: You mentioned that as a part of the company, when you carried your research forward, you thought of what would happen in two to three years ahead in time, right? So a very natural question would be, where do you see technology in these domains of NLP, computer vision, predictive analysis evolve? in the future, five to 10 years from
1: now? Yeah, five to 10 years, I don't think anyone will be kind of, uh, you know, earlier we used to, even in research, uh, when I was in a more R&D setting, we used to do five year kind of, uh, we used to say that we work on things that can be applied in five years. In an enterprise setting, it's ideally what you, what can be done yesterday, but for the sake of it, we still say, you know, let's, let's build a roadmap for something that can be implemented in two years but then the roadmap changes the next year you know so i think in this very evolving landscape it's very difficult to do this roadmaps but if i have to you know pick a technology or let's say if i have to bet on something that i think would be relevant for these uh, three fields so predictive so let's start with again if i try to really abstract high level you know what i see as ai in in companies today i would say there are three or four uh, broad categories so one predictive analytics which is more the forecasting the customer churn the, the predictions and things like that the other one are more nlp focused applications the third one computer vision and the fourth i would say there's a lot of momentum these days again maybe most of it for public uh, public relations purposes around ethical ai explainable ai and things like that so i will come to let's say try to address uh, my views on all four so predictive analytics i see the next big thing really kind of which might have an impact is auto ml so right now you you use a lot of you know, even as data scientists, we use a lot of, um, you know, we, we start from scratch. We, we use our intuition, we use our experience to try to think of which algorithm makes sense for a, for a particular problem. With AutoML, with neural architecture search and things like that, these will get more and more mature, more and more, um, you know, uh, let's say uh, powerful, I would say. And this, I do not see them kind of as replacing uh, a data scientist, but I do see them as kind of doing the first step of data exploration that we all usually do. So they will give you kind of hints in terms of these are the five uh, algorithms which make sense for this type of data. This is like how the data is structured and things like that. So AutoML will rise. This will also mean that it will lower the amount of uh, you know specialization that you need for a lot of jobs. So again, something to think about how it will impact the job dynamics and things like that. If I think of um, NLP, uh, again, after transformers, uh, honestly, I don't see, you know, what can impact. What I see is really kind of, um, uh, yes, there would be more applications and, um, you know, synthetic, uh, let's say, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, some applications where you're able to use the GPT-3 transformers and huge uh, data, let's say, models to to kind of uh, write news stories and things like that, they have very little, um, you know, enterprise usage as of today. Yes, they sound uh, interesting every now and then you get a news article where, you know, it is written by a, by a GPT-3 based uh, a decoder or something like that, uh, which is great, but it doesn't have much enterprise value. I think the enterprise value of it only comes when it can write the next chatbot answer and things like that. So today chatbot answers are you know you provide predefined chatbot answers. Tomorrow if you can use the transformer to really uh, write uh, to first of all understand what the what it means and write a new answer which isn't predefined. I see a certain momentum going towards there but um, you know I think we are, we are still a bit far from there, because uh, I see, you know, even I was kind of reviewing papers for EMNLP uh, recently, and even the latest, let's say, research papers are a bit uh, behind that. But, but I, I see that kind of if you have, if you ask me, what I see as the next priority in NLP for the next two years, I would say more natural conversations. I think that's where we are headed. Uh, computer vision, uh, so. I mean, you know, this computer vision led to the whole, uh, you know, let's say explosion of AI, kind of promise of AI with deep learning and things like that, but that was a few years back. I think what I see mostly happening in the field today, as I mentioned, is people are trying different approaches like vision transformers and things like that, which is basically taking transformers and applying it to a computer vision. I mean, just to give a very high level idea, it doesn't necessarily mean that vision transformers, yes, there's a lot of research interest behind it because they need to do some new things, researchers, but the vision transformers don't give you better accuracy than, let's say, the convolutional neural network, which has existed for many years. What vision transformers, where they show value, is that they are able to work with less data. So you need less training data. This is where they show value. But As an enterprise, if your goal is more to get, you know, how you can do object detection or semantic segmentation, a convolutional neural network that was discovered many years back will work perfectly and even provide better accuracy than the vision transformers that you get today. Only if you have less data, only if you don't have sufficient data, your problem is very different from where you get pre-trained models. These can help. And the other part where I see a bit of momentum maybe in the near future and where we are also working as Darwin is really to push this computer vision models to the edge to get them to it because right now everything is supervised everything is uh, happens on the cloud the idea with the edge is to really push this trained uh, computer vision models uh, very large models to be executed on small IoT devices small cameras a mobile phone is already a very powerful computer, you know, so I wouldn't even consider mobile as a really pushing the boundaries of edge. With edge, I really mean the small sensors, so NVIDIA is kind of quite, um, uh, let's say, leaders in this field where they are pushing, let's say, the hardwares, the uh, GPU-specific hardwares, which, um, you know, the Jetson Nano and things like that, where you can deploy very advanced computer vision models on small devices, and these are good because then you can put them in hospitals, you can put them in shops. They are not sending data back to the cloud, but they can do things in a very privacy preserving way. So this is where I see kind of on the deployment side, really um, things uh, picking up on the computer vision side. And uh, lastly, ethical AI, explainable AI. I think there's a certain amount of this is, you know, those things that big companies do to sound good. I don't think uh, people still take them seriously. It's just that they, they seem good from, a, you know, pub, uh, public relations point of view. So companies are having this ethical AIs, but I I don't think I see a bit of momentum behind it, but I still don't see people taking it seriously. It's just, um, you know, so, and it's also very difficult to do. I mean, explainable AI for uh, statistical-based models, you can do it. But let's say it's already difficult for to do for neural networks, forget the transformers, uh, you know, where you have an architecture where it, which is kind of stacking of different neural network architectures. You can forget about it for now. And uh, especially if we think about this, you know, composable AI or let's say multimodal AI where you are combining an NLP model with a computer vision model so you can understand the complexity of it. So. I think we are far from it but maybe the good thing is that you do not see too many examples of these in enterprise today so most of the enterprise applications that you see today are probably as good as a regression model so you can do a bit of explain explanation and things like that on top of it so in a way it's good or bad but yes there's a lot of momentum behind it and uh, i think this would also pick up in the near future but I see it more or less like privacy, you know? So we all know we should be concerned about privacy. Every every now and then we hear a news article, you know, this company takes our data, that company takes our data, but honestly, we don't care so much. It's the same with ethical AI, you know? It's Yes, it's good to have, but in the end of the day, do most people really care about it for it to be considered a priority? So unless people show that they care about it, Companies won't take it seriously. Sorry, that was a long answer, but I hope it covered kind of all, all four categories that I'm more yes, or less. And I
0: have a lot of follow up questions, which I'm not really sure if I <laughs> can ask because of the time constraint. Darwin Edge works on computer vision, predictive analysis, federated learning, deep learning, and edge inference. So, keeping these domains and defining these domains as AI and leaving NLP out. What are the biggest challenges in these fields standing today?
1: I think the challenge, as I was kind of briefly hinting at, the challenge is really to take, you know, most of the work that has been done because on the cloud, you know, we we are kind of, we are going in the other direction, I would say, where we are almost uh, thinking it's like unlimited resources in terms of both computing power and memory so we are thinking of you know there are serverless architectures and things like that where you are starting to build uh, let's say applications in a way where you don't worry about computing and you don't worry about uh, any of these constraints that we have grown up with you know beware of memory it will run out and things like that okay it still uh, costs money but i think with the edge we are really trying to go the other way around where you you again start to worry about these things you know there are certain benefits because they these are let's say devices which need to run autonomously so they have uh, you know they are we need to be careful of their power consumption so you know because they are very they can last only a few hours and you know otherwise so, so how much you uh, come, let's say how much computation you can do and you know how fast things like that. So I think that's, that adds a lot of complexity to, uh, to, you know, what we are used to, the computer vision models kind of uh, executing in the cloud. But it has a lot of promise as well. I mean, to be able to do it properly in a very efficient architecture. So the and also you know in terms of let's say in neural networks and if you really go to the bit level kind of details where we are using let's say float 16 kind of variables to do the internal maps and things like that you need to uh, maybe update them you can only use integers and things like that which brings down the size of the trained neural network and things like that so it's you need to optimize at that level of course there's a level below as well where companies like intel and VIDIA are you know, optimizing how how you can, uh, let's say, do the hardware architecture change from a von Neumann kind of sequential architecture to more neuromorphic and things like that, which are more biologically inspired, which are good for massively parallel kind of uh, things. But we are not at the hardware level where we focus more, I try to address the challenges, uh, let's say, how can we you know, optimize the neural network architecture, reduce the memory footprint while still keeping the same level of accuracy. I think it's kind of a, a balance and that's where all these things make sense. So federated learning again is uh, is trying to address the limitations of uh, you know the centralized supervised learning where you have all the data, all the computational power in one place. So with the edge, let's say you will be collecting, especially in a factory setting or things like that, or even in hospitals, you will be collecting data at the edge, which may belong to different organizations. And then you're trying to combine them with federated learning to still be able to build a model on all of them belonging to different organizations. But comparing it to a centralized model, if you have 10 data data items, you try to divide it into two companies, five-five, and then you build two models on, you know, uh, two, let's say, five-five uh, five data items, five data items, and then you build another layer to kind of combine these two models into, uh, let's say, a centralized model without any of them knowing the other's data. So that's kind of a privacy-preserving data, which tries to address the limitations that you do not have. One organization may not have a lot of data, so you're able to combine data. But still, keeping their uh, privacy, uh, let's say, aspects. So uh, these things again, because the current supervised uh, models need so much data; they are data hungry. So these, all these approaches are kind of starting to uh, to pick up to address that need. So there are a lot of things happening. You know, I, I can keep talking about it for uh, many hours.
0: And that is perfectly all right because I like listening to you. <laughs> but yeah we are towards the end of the time limit that we have and i'll ask a personal question now it is more towards the end of this discussion and i believe i can ask this personal question you have lived and worked in five countries how different do you think are the cultures especially if you have to compare the subcontinent canada and the countries in Europe where you have lived and worked? Because you have been in France, you did your uh, PhD, you worked briefly in Germany, and you have spent a substantial amount of your life in Switzerland.
1: Um, it's difficult to compare, you know, it's... Um, I will give a diplomatic answer, I think they all have their pros and cons. Uh, it's um, It goes back a bit to, you know, where you feel comfortable where you feel you know i mean of course i mean india is different because you know there's the family ties and of course that's where you have grown up so that's different from let's say canada and europe and europe again each country is very different you know it's like the states in india as you would have imagined yourself so it's difficult to compare them it's um, you know having grown up on bollywood movies and things like that you know switzerland had a certain appeal from from the start so i think that's why i at least wanted to have a feel of switzerland same for paris and uh france and things like that but i think it's good to try but i wouldn't say again everyone has the luxury of trying all of them i think once you find somewhere where you feel comfortable you have a job that so i think It's good to, you know, be satisfied both on the job and the personal front. So one, yes, you may not find all the jobs, basically all the types of jobs that you're looking for everywhere. Maybe that will change post-COVID. We will need to see as, you know, more and more companies are saying we will hire anywhere in the world, you know. It doesn't matter where you are. So I think that's one big shift we will see. We will need to see and analyze how it really plays out. I think for now, it's difficult to assess its impact, how how it will go forward. But if that really happens, that will really change the global dynamics of people, you know, traveling to different countries to work. Uh, so that is one big, let's say, disruption that I see coming. But again, how successful and to what extent that will happen needs to be seen. But um, other than that, yeah, I would really say, I mean, I think wherever you feel comfortable, you know, explore the world as much as you can. I and mean, then it's like... Uh, still, maybe I should have traveled to South America as well before you know I can make a proper comparison. So I think that's something. I'll, yeah, but I, I think you can get the summary. it Really depends where you feel comfortable.
0: Yeah, but what tips would you give to a young professional who are entering extremely diverse and multicultural teams? Because a lot of students who come for their masters come out of their home country for the first time and they often stick to people who are from very similar cultural backgrounds. So a few of them have inhibitions and apprehensions about joining big teams with multiple people from across the cultural spectrum. What would be your two tips? And I promise this is the last question.
1: Actually, I would see it kind of the other way around, you know, so, I mean, let's say, I mean, you know, let's say I went to Canada for my studies um, after let's say you know the, it was my first uh, foreign country and i think again if i reflect a bit i would have found it difficult to, to you know coming directly from india to work in a in a company where there were only canadians or let's say you know only people of a certain category uh, i mean let's say of a certain nationality because they have a very different culture both at work and uh, on the personal side but actually if you, you know, because most companies, at least the global ones, you see a diverse mix and that should actually be a comforting factor. So I, I think it's wrong to think that, you know, I would see that, you know, if a company where multiple, let's say, nationalities can work together or are working together already, that means that the company is open to, you know, or at least has built a culture of openness around it to, you know, to really encourage people coming from a certain, um, let's say, region who haven't been exposed to this type of multicultural organization to work so i would see that really as a positive thing so if you haven't been exposed to this environment i would really you know encourage uh, let's say students to i mean i would see that as a really positive sign that you are kind of trying to join a multinational company or things like that so i see them more as a safe uh, safe ground but on the other hand yes i mean you cannot be in your um, you know the reason so If you are so kind of afraid, you know, so it's probably better to find a job in the environment you are used to. The reason you have decided to come to a different country is that I'm assuming that you want to try certain new things, meet new people and things like that. And the best way to meet them is actually at work, because there you have a certain, you know, let's say common ground in terms of you're taking the same course, you're working in the same team. So you have certain, you're not talking points already, which kind of should make you comfortable in getting around. And then of course, once you do that, that will automatically lead to broadening your social circle in terms of you will meet the friends of friends and things like that. So uh, again, it depends, you know, I'm, I'm not a really personality expert. And uh, if you are so afraid, maybe it's better to stay in India. Yeah? But if you have already taken the step of coming out, I mean, I would really start with your work colleagues, you know, whether at university or at work, and then from there, try to kind of um, integrate as much as possible. Of course, you don't need to, usually, in most countries these days, you have a bit of, let's say, Indian community and things like that, who can provide you the initial support and, um, let's say, um, that you might need. But uh, after that, it's up to you how much you want to, you know, integrate in the local customs, uh, the local culture.
0: Malada, it is always a pleasure conversing with you, and this has been no different. For those who are listening to this conversation, Darwin Digital's website is darwinedge.com, and on their page, they list what they work on. They work on computer vision, predictive analysis, edge inference, deep learning, federated learning, and reinforcement learning. Except for the term edge inference, I believe... The other terms are already very popular among students not only at this university but across all German uh, German universities and if there are students from other universities in Europe thank you and <laughs> I'm sure you have heard of these and uh, maybe check their website out and if you like reading then maybe follow Dr. deaya Biswas on medium and his URL is deaya biswas.medium.com It's incredible having a conversation with you.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure. And, you know, I I hope I could give you some, at least my, uh, you know, what I feel or have an overview of things. And feel free to get in touch. I'm always open to, you know, conversations, interesting conversations. And, uh, you know, connecting with students is something. I think we have a luxury that we are based at uh, University Innovation Park. Uh, So... Um, so I think we do try to keep, let's say, this as much as possible, whether in terms of internships, thesis and things like that. And I promise you, usually our thesis is where you will, you know, have a proper need and it's not like a side project. So, yeah, feel free to touch. It would be good to hear. And thanks again. Yeah, have, a, have a good weekend, everyone.
0: Yeah, but I, I'm sorry. I'll extend it a bit. a bit. There is a question that came and I forgot to take audience question. I'm sorry. There is a question. And the question is by Shubham. Shubham is a team member, and uh, yeah, he had a he has an interest in NLP, and now he's trying to specialize in computer vision. His question is: Since you are a PhD, what suggestions would you like to give to people who have doubts in their mind whether their knowledge would be industry relevant, keeping in mind the hard work they all put in?
1: Uh... I'm not sure I fully understand the question. So is the question that... um... Basically, he is in a doubt whether he should do PhD or not.
0: (laughs) And on which parameters would he decide? Because Uh, PhD work might not be industry relevant. And they, they are putting in so much hard work in their PhD work. So should he
1: do or not do the PhD okay i i sort of understand and i will try to let's say answer based on based on that so okay so let's say you're doing a phd in nlp and uh, things like that so i think again it depends uh, what you want to do so if you're doing a phd in nlp you will have a you know let's say i think your ideal Uh, let's say uh, career opportunities would be either you go to a university, become a professor, or you join one of these industry research labs, whether it's, uh, you know, Google Research, Microsoft Research, IBM Research, or a few of them which are left. So this would be kind of the more natural uh, paths. On the other hand, I would still say that if you want to target or your interests are more in the applied uh, companies who are not kind of, um, you know, doing research either in academic or industry setting, but after PhD, you want to really apply your skills to to join, let's say, a bit more engineering or even the non-IT companies. The good thing is that in machine learning these days, uh, today, having a PhD is seen as an advantage. Maybe salary-wise, you wouldn't get that much above what you would usually get with a master's and maybe three to four years um, experience. So I don't think you would get an advantage uh, from uh, from that point of view, but usually it's considered a plus these days to, to have a, because, you know, maybe you're not able to apply the exact problem that you were working on but people still value the you know the phd because people at least in the industry people have an impression i don't know good or bad that phd means that at least you are able to stay focused you are able to work on a problem you are able to you know let's say build something new or think of something new that no one has thought before so both from a novelty innovation point of view so all these things are kind of you know good especially in uh, machine learning these days or data science So that's why you will see many job advertisements which say phd preferred and things like that so maybe you won't be able to use the next generation of transformers that you built in a company but you will i think you will get the value for uh, for your phd in terms of you wouldn't be behind uh, let's say the salary you would get or the compensation or the level at which you join, even if you join this non-research organization is what I mean. I think this this is the best advice that I can give you. I, but beware of it that these are all the things that you can do after the PhD. PhD itself is not very easy. It depends on, you know, you're finding a good supervisor, you're finding a problem that you are uh, interested to work on for three to four years. So... All the advice that I gave you is basically on how you know how it would look like after you have finished your PhD. But don't underestimate the effort of getting a PhD itself, yeah? So
0: The companies might also think that if this guy has survived a PhD, he will definitely survive my company.
1: <laughs> well, I mean I mean again, I mean to be very frank, I mean there might be some challenges as well yeah like i said usually in machine learning data science these days it's considered a plus but you know again to be very frank given that your manager might not have a phd in most cases it might be seen that you are overqualified as well yeah we are humans so all these things play out you know so just be ready for it maybe some companies or specific teams that they are hiring they are not ready to have a phd because they never had a phd in their team you know Some of them still think that you will go about publishing papers and not worry about the problems that the company has. So you will find a mixed reaction. In general, it's positively perceived these days, especially if you do it, again, in machine learning and LP. In these fields, PhD is preferred because I think people understand that it requires a certain rigor and kind of mathematical understanding and things like that. But not guaranteed it will not work every time,
0: Devananda, thank you so, so much. I cannot thank you enough for this conversation.
1: It was a pleasure. And yeah, feel free to connect. And yeah, looking forward to hearing all your next exploits and the next round of research, you know, research results. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys.
0: Hey, you have made it till the end of this another amazing conversation. Please check this space out next week, Wednesday, Next week, we publish another episode, which you might find useful as well. We aim to release one new episode every Wednesday for the next six weeks on LinkedIn, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, Stitcher, GeoSavan, and a few more platforms. If you find this conversation useful, please share this with your friends, and stay connected with us. Thank you for listening.